Well, when I started uh, losing my hair in my mid-20s, I told myself that when things got to the point that I was, so, was self-conscious about my receding hairline, I was going to shave all of my hair off. And that happened uh, a little more than 20 years ago now, right before, believe it or not, Highway's first ever all-church retreat. But I promise you, I don't have any big reveals in store for the retreat that's coming up in just a couple of weeks, so no, no need to fear there. Uh, but as you might imagine, uh, my bald head was extremely sensitive uh, after I shaved the hair off, both to the cold and to the sun, for some time. And so I would wear a hat pretty much all the time when I was outdoors. Uh, beanies in the winter and baseball hats in the spring and summer and fall. And there was a particular kind of baseball hat that I took a liking to. It was called the Franchise Closer. And you can see a picture of it here on the screen. It's now made by a company called 47, but it's the same hat. It was low profile, it was fitted, the bill was pre-rounded, and it had a weathered look. Now, although I have been a Giants fan for my entire life, since I was wearing hats so often, I wanted some variety. And so over time, I bought franchise closer hats for several different teams. I had a Tigers hat, I had a Mariners hat, I had an Angels hat, and I also had a Boston Red Sox hat. And all of those hats, even though they were of different teams, they all had one thing in common besides being made by Franchise Closer. They were all blue because I like blue. And I bought them and wore them because they were blue. So one night, uh, I was given two tickets at the last minute to a Giants game. And I took my my son Blake with me, who was probably seven or eight years old at the time. And because I was wearing these blue hats all the time, you know, for whatever reason, I went to the Giants game wearing my Red Sox hat, which made no sense, of course. It wasn't a Red Sox game, it was the Giants game. The Giants weren't playing the Red Sox, but I wore my blue Red Sox hat nonetheless. So Blake and I are sitting there, we're watching the game, and then at some point, four women come down the aisle and sit in the row right behind us. And at some point, one of them notices my Red Sox hat and makes a comment about it. Then she asks me if I'm a Red Sox fan, to which I replied, no, it's just a hat. <laughs> and let's just say that was definitely the wrong response. <laughs> right? I had absolutely no idea the kind of outrage that, uh, that, that the words that came out of my mouth were going to cause. Right? All of a sudden, I had four Red Sox fans yelling at me. Right? They were so appalled. Just a hat, they said. And I'm not kidding. You know, had I not been accompanied by a cute little redheaded kid, I think things could have gotten seriously ugly. So that night... While I had the external appearance of a Red Sox fan, right, I was wearing a hat that a Red Sox fan would wear, I definitely did not have the heart of a Red Sox fan. I did not have the heart that matched the hat. Well, this morning we are continuing our teaching series entitled All Things New, where we are looking together at the first five chapters of the Old Testament book of Joshua, and how the Israelites' transition from their years in the wilderness into the land that God had promised them can inform our transition into the new calendar year. So far in our series, we have looked at the crossing and how God led his people across the Jordan River and, and all of the things that that story shows us 
about the pacing of our spiritual lives. We've looked at the Karn, at the 12 stones that God instructed Joshua to place as a memorial of that crossing, and the way that that story invites us to remember and to be grateful as we transition into 2023. And this morning, as this new generation of Israelites continues their transition into the promised land, we're going to look together at another invitation that God has for his people, an invitation for them to re-engage with the covenant. And as we'll see, this invitation was very much inspired by the disparity between the previous generation's external appearance and their hearts. If you'd like to join me in the scriptures this morning, you can turn or tap your way to Joshua chapter 5, which is our text. As always, you're welcome to follow along either on the screens behind me here in the auditorium or on the screen that is out in the courtyard as well. And as we pick up the action here in Joshua chapter 5, the Israelites have just placed those 12 memorial stones at their camp at Gilgal, just as God had instructed. That's the scene as we come to Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, which says this. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Now those instructions are definitely more intense than the instructions that God gave to Joshua in chapter four when he told him to select 12 tribal representatives and go get some stones out of the Jordan. Right? This is something else entirely and by a significant order of magnitude. Joshua chapter five, verse three says, so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Ha'arlath. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so we see in those verses that God very clearly instructs Joshua to reinstate circumcision. And something that I really appreciate about the book of Joshua is the way that the narrative communicates with us so directly. Because that's not always the case with Hebrew narratives. Hebrew narratives are often much more subtle in their approach. They tend to do more showing than they do telling. But Joshua, as we've seen both this week and last week, really puts the cookies on the lower shelf for us. Right? We saw this last time when it came to why God instructed Joshua to get the stones from the Jordan and place them at the camp. And we see it again here as he reinstates circumcision. Verse four explicitly says, this is why he did so. And the reason the text tells us is because 
while the Israelites who had come out of Egypt had been circumcised, this generation, this generation that was now entering into the promised land, the generation that had been born in the wilderness and was now about to take possession of the land that God had promised them, had not. And that's significant because of all of the things that circumcision represented. In Genesis chapter 17, God instituted circumcision as a sign of the covenant between him and his people that he established with Abraham. The circumcision was the identity marker for the people of God. But we also see, very early on in the Old Testament actually, that circumcision was more than just something that was physical and external. It had a metaphorical significance as well. We see very early on in the Old Testament that circumcision was not something that was just external and physical. It also had a metaphorical significance. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, when Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on them, after being up there for 40 days and 40 nights, when he came down to begin leading the people on the journey to the promised land, he said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16, circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Right? Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. And then look at what he says next. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. It's interesting to notice there, I think, that Moses' command for the people to circumcise their hearts is followed by this expose of God's character and the things that he cares about. And Moses highlights God's greatness and his power and his impartiality. The way that he defends the fatherless and the widow. His, his love for and provision for the foreigner residing among his people. And Moses' call here for the Israelites to mirror that same character and love reveals to us that a circumcised heart is one that actually cares about the things that God cares about. That the circumcised heart actively cares about what God cares about. It's a heart that's being transformed by God's heart. And that transformation is ultimately seen in obedience. It's ultimately seen in obedience. And we see that not only in verse 20 there, where Moses says, fear the Lord and serve him, but we also see it just a few verses later in Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, when Moses says, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. And so for Moses, circumcision was more than simply an external identity marker. This generation that he was talking to already had that. Moses knew that it was more. It was also a heart condition. It was a heart condition that was most powerfully evidenced through obedience. A circumcised heart is evidenced through obedience. And that 
is precisely the issue here in Joshua chapter five, as God instructs Joshua to reinstate circumcision. That because the generation that, that had escaped from Egypt hadn't been obedient. They had that external identity marker. They, they had been circumcised. They were wearing their Red Sox hat, effectively. But their disobedience, right, their failure to continue with the practice, their failure to continue with circumcision and uphold this important sign of the covenant, that betrayed the fact that they had not submitted to that much more important circumcision, right, the circumcision of their hearts. That was seen in their disobedience. And now, God's instructions to Joshua here are an invitation. They're an invitation to obedience. Right? An invitation for the Israelites to renew themselves to and re-engage with his covenant. And of course, the timing of all of this is anything but coincidental. And that's because this land that the Israelites had just crossed into, the land of Canaan, was a big part of that covenant that God had made with Abraham. And the Israelites' presence now, physically, in that land, was a very tangible sign of God's faithfulness, both to his people and to his promises. It was, it was an indisputable sign of God's faithfulness to that covenant that he had made. Now he is inviting his people to reciprocate that faithfulness. He's inviting them to show their love by being obedient to the covenant. And we see in verse 8 of Joshua chapter 5 that that invitation is accepted. After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so this place is and called Gilgal to this day. And so we see that for the Israelites, the journey from the wilderness to landedness is very much a journey from disobedience to obedience. Now, as the narrative continues, we see that the Israelites' obedience to circumcision is punctuated by the celebration of the Passover. Joshua chapter 5, verse 10 says, On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Much like we saw last week with the memorial stones, the celebration of the Passover here really deepens the sense of connection with, and, and in some measure, completion of this part of the larger story that God is writing in the lives of his people. Because the Passover was a reminder of the way that God had rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt. And Exodus chapters 7 through 12 tell the story of the 10 plagues that God sent in order to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go. And before the last of those plagues, God gave his people some very special instructions through Moses. He told them to kill an unblemished lamb sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of their home and eat the lamb before dawn. And God told Moses in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, that the blood on the doorpost would be a sign that would enable him to see where his people were. And he would pass over those houses and spare them from the destruction that was coming to the Egyptians. 
And that's exactly what God did. And after that 10th plague, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and told them to leave and go worship Yahweh as they had requested. And so it was that very first Passover uh, that led to the crossing of the Red Sea and then to the wilderness. And now in Joshua 5 here, we see the Israelites going from the wilderness through another crossing, this time across the Jordan River, and now again celebrating the Passover. And so we see that the Passover really bookends this wilderness story and serves as a marker both of the completion of a season and also at the same time of a very significant new beginning for the Israelites. Joshua chapter 5 verse 11 says, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. And so those verses reveal for us that the manna that had sustained the Israelites during that wilderness season stopped after the Passover was celebrated and the people were able to begin eating the produce of the land that they had been promised. They were able to experience Canaan now as that land of milk and honey. You know, part of the new beginning for the Israelites west of the Jordan involved embracing obedience. And a significant part of the new beginning for the Israelites west of the Jordan involved embracing obedience. And as we embrace a new beginning in the form of a new year, the experience of the Israelites here invites us, I think, to consider how we might do the same. But it invites us to consider what it might look like for us to embrace the beginning of this new year with obedience. What it might look like for us to love God in the same kind of way. And you know, while circumcision is no longer the external identity marker since the advent of the new covenant that was mediated through Jesus' death on the cross, one act of obedience that is an outward side, sign of an inward reality that we are invited into as followers of Jesus is baptism. And baptism is an act of obedience that is an outward expression of the inward faith that we hold in our hearts. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. The physical act of being lowered into the water and then raised from it is a way for us to identify with Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a way for us to identify with the forgiveness that we have received once and for all through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. It's a way for us to celebrate the new life that we have through Jesus. And it's also a way to publicly proclaim our identity, both as a follower of Jesus and also as a part of the community of God's people. There's also, interestingly enough, a significant connection between baptism and, and this story of God's people crossing into the promised land as well. Like last week, we talked about the memorial stones that God instructed his people to place as a reminder of the way that he had led them across the Jordan. 
And in the same way, baptism, I think, very much serves as one of those stones of remembrance in our lives as well. But it's one of the stones that we place on our own personal carn that reminds us of and anchors us to God's amazing love and his grace. And so this morning, I want to extend an invitation. If you've never been baptized, I want to invite you to consider taking that step of obedience this year. That baptism can be one of those things that's very easy to put off for later. But it is such an important expression of our love and our devotion to God. And so if you're feeling the nudge from the beginning of the new year this morning, we would love to walk alongside you as you place that important memorial stone on your card. If you're interested in learning more about baptism, you can either connect with me or any member of the staff team, or you can go to highway.org slash baptism and let us know that you are interested there. But I hope if you've not been baptized that you'll consider that in the spirit of what it looks like for us to, uh, to walk in obedience uh, to, uh, to, uh, to the way of Jesus. Alternately, uh, in addition to baptism, the spiritual practices that we have been sharing about that are starting this coming week are another great way to embrace the beginning of this new year with obedience. Uh, we have had a great response to these practices so far, so great, in fact, that our Ignatian Adventure Group has reached capacity. Uh, we've also had a great response to the New Testament reading practice. That group is beginning tomorrow. We'll be reading the New Testament over the course of six months, two chapters a day, five days a week, and there's still time to join. Thankfully, there's no limit to participation in the New Testament reading practice group. So if you're interested in joining up with that or learning more about it, you can sign up or learn more at highway.org slash spiritual practice, and we would welcome you to, to join us in that. You know, as we consider these ways to walk in obedience and really all the different ways that we might choose to embrace obedience as we transition into the new year, it's important, I think, to remember, and our story reminds us of this this morning, that as we do that, God is, is ultimately not interested merely in our external performance. And if he was interested in that, there was no reason for Moses to tell the people that they needed to circumcise their hearts. Right, they already had that external obedience. God is not merely interested in our external performance. And he's not interested in us obeying with perfection either. What he is interested in is our heart. That's so much more important than, than the act of baptism or, or, or than our performance in a spiritual practice is what those things reflect actually about the ongoing transforming work that is happening inside of us, right? the ongoing transforming work that is happening in our hearts. And so it's important, I think, so important as we, as we seek to love God through our obedience, that we hold that very carefully, that we hold that very carefully, that we remember that, that performance and perfection, which we can be so easily drawn into in the mix of what it means to be obedient, right? but to remember that performance and perfection are not God's measure, right? Those are merely externals. God is interested in our heart. And so may our hearts be shaped by God's heart as we walk with him in obedience.